Welcome back to Between Sessions. My name is Ebony Harris. And I'm Elisa Bokeen, and we are two brown chicks changing the face of therapy on both sides of the couch. Yes! <laughs> welcome back, welcome back. This is going to be another good episode. We have Dr. LaWanda Hill. We're so excited to talk about talk to her about some of her experiences today and the experiences of Black women. Yes, for sure. I'm so excited good. to be here. Thank y'all yes. for inviting me. Of yes, course. yes. And we're going to be diving really into the experience that Black women have in these workspaces that are generally not good for one's mental health, right? Mm-hmm. To say the least, to say the least. Mm-hmm. But before we dive into that, uh, Dr. Hill, please tell us about the work you do and why you started to do this work. Ah, thank you so much. So first of all, I love y'all's intro. It's giving me all, <laughs> all, all of the energy, all of the love life. So I am Dr. LaWanda Hill. I am a licensed psychologist. I'm a consultant and I am a Black women's wellness expert. Um, so I see women professionally from therapy in Texas and California. And then I coach women all around the U.S. And so my specialty is Black women, all things Black women, our plight, our journey, our struggles, our triumphs, our challenges. Um, and the answer to that is simple. I think that our ancestors did the work for us mm-hmm. to thrive and they didn't get that opportunity. And we we owe it to them to pay homage by being the best version of ourselves. And so because oh, of our yeah. histories and because of what we've gone through, we don't always have the right tools for that, the journey for that, the mindset, even the models for that. So my work is dedicated to giving black women the space, all the space they need to help them thrive. That's awesome. I just decided that's going to be the name of this podcast. Our <laughs> so yes. I love yes. that. Yes. Yes. And it's so good. So Alisa made me very aware that you recently wrote an op-ed about the workplace trauma you experienced at Stanford, um, which has had a positive response. Can you speak a bit of what you experienced and comment on how this is a common thing for Black women? Oh, yes. What, do you have time? Like, where do yes. you have time? Where is yours? I'm going to make sure I don't shake my head off my body as you're talking. (laughs) (laughs) So my experience at Stanford, so specifically, just what was the question again? Like, just comment on it and Black women. Yeah, so what was your experience and then how common is it for Black women? Well, okay. So my experience at Stanford, for those of you who haven't read the op-ed or know about it, it's entitled Courted, Booed Up, and Gaslit by Stanford. And that would describe my relationship. I was heavily courted. I was deeply planted in Houston, Texas. Shout out to the H. That is my second home. I love it. It was not easy to leave, Um, but I was courted to leave, to come into the Ivy Plus institution, if you will. And I remember the hiring manager sharing with me, you know, our Black black students are thriving. Um, They just need additional support. And so, of course, I'm all about Blackness and you know, helping black students who are high achievers do the work. So I uprooted and I left and I was courted and then we were booed up. I got there and I got to work very early. Um, My first incident that I responded to was a student death, um, a death by suicide, followed very closely by a news incident. And so I just, that alone should give you a sense of (laughs) the type of toxicity that I'll talk more about that I was navigating that I didn't know I was navigating. And so because myself and other Black women specifically are conditioned to deliver and conditioned to be perfectors of justice and democracy and 
DI champions and make the ground more ripe, uh, I was willing to do that. And because I was willing to do that, I was booed up. So it's like, okay, great. We have a workhorse, if you will. Um, and But I am a provocateur and I don't shy away from hard conversations. So, and I'm very frank about what I observe. So when I begin to observe problematic, anti-Black, racist things, I name that. And then that is where the gaslighting began to happen. Um, concurrently, I was still, I mean, like, if Trey Song say, I bet the neighbors know my name, the administration know my name. Every single one of them knows my name. And so because of that work, you know, I was being asked to do these things, but, you know, people want to be comfortable. And so when I begin to make people too uncomfortable, that's where the gaslighting began to happen. And I was going to stay, but I remember my boss, shout out to Dr. Bina Patel. I love her so much. And we were having a very good conversation and she said, you know, you're what's best for Stanford, but I don't know if Stanford is what's best for you right now. Mm. And mm. and I felt that and I had already known that to some degree. And so I was kind of like, do I stay? Do I go? And I had my first and last panic attack. And after that, I was like, the body keeps the score. This place is too heavy. It's too toxic. Yep. It's too it's too problematic so I needed to self-select out and I did and so that's the, the that's just the, the the very dirty notes the quick and dirty notes right. of the experience and so to your second piece of your question does this happen to black women absolutely often it's commonplace it's why I wrote the op-ed um, as I mentioned my practice is dedicated to black women specifically black women leaders and so as that, just that alone, along with the owner of a DEI firm, and then I was chairing the Black Coalition at Stanford, these stories were just coming, inundating me every day, every day, every day. And people were fearful to tell these stories. You yeah. know, if you were to go take a look at that op-ed right now on LinkedIn, you will see 60% of those people are still Stanford employees commenting. And wow. that speaks to the like... Thank you for writing this. Thank you for telling this story. That's all they can say, right? Because they're still there. And so I wrote it because one, it's their experience. Two, it was healing for me. But three, there needed to be public accountability to the way institutions like Stanford court Black women, boo them up, gaslight them, and create traumatic experiences that we have to do the work to heal from. And so it has been met overwhelmingly well. I mean, there's some riffraff, you know, coming out with the racism and BS, but by and large, it's, it's, it's been good and it's been therapeutic for people because people relate. You know, one thing that, that you spoke about was that's when the gaslighting begins. And sometimes when we're being gaslit, we don't realize we're being gaslit. So I'm curious for you, was there a time that you were started to question yourself and the reason I ask is because I know I know how you are and you're very clear and you're very aware but did mm-hmm. that happen to you at any point also absolutely mm-hmm. like none yeah. of us escape toxicity and and the function of it is to slowly erode you know and make you question yourself and so and I wrote this in the op-ed so the first time I began to question myself about being gaslit was with the the black fist so if you mm-hmm, haven't read it, um, mm-hmm. I was curating the visual for Black Lives, right? This was right after George Floyd and every company across the U.S. was anti-Black. And anti- yep. I mean, anti-racist, I'm sorry. And they wanted to do this work, you know? And so they moved to have a visual for Black Lives. And then I got called in to curate it because I like to curate and I'm pretty good at it. So I'm curating the visual for Black Lives. 
And I was like, hmm, what's going to be the image? Like people in pain. At this point, we like, what, six months into at home, isolated, right. <laughs> you know, the trauma is happening. We're seeing the disproportionate rates of deaths of black and brown folks. There's no cure in sight. 45 is still in office. It's mm. just a lot, you know, like we're in a right. really tough place. And so I was trying to create a space that would be cathartic and healing for people. And so I moved to, I submitted the black fist as the image of the flyer, traditional, any black person in this space get it. Well, y'all, the, the image came back for my approval and they had changed it to a white fist. Wow. They had changed it to a white fist. And so I was kind of like, am I tripping? Right. Like, no. <laughs> is, this, is this a white fist? So, you know, because you kind of feel like, no, nah, yeah. that can't be a white fist. It doesn't even make sense. If it was right. Right. <laughs> you know right. 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 So I'm starting to question to Elisa's question. I'm like, yeah. maybe I'm tripping. Like, maybe I'm just kind of bitch. So I send it to like six of my friends. And I said, what you see? They were like, that's a white fucking fit. Like, and I, they were living, right? And so I was like, thought so. So now let me send my response. And I'm like, kind of like, and I told people, and I've told different people I've interviewed with, I can pop off. Like, I can, I own it. I can pop off. This wasn't one of my pop off moments. This was one of my, hey, this is very inappropriate. And this is actually harmful. We're very wounded right now. I don't understand why anybody would assert this fist to be plastered on our message. Y'all, the, the, oh my God, it's not a big deal. You know, you're overreacting, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, well, am I kind of like just too raw right now? Like, am I overreacting? It's, it's just a fist, Lawanda. And everybody's like, no, it's not just a fist, you know? And so just that insidious nature of like the deflection of responsibility, right? The, the refusal of accountability and how it's just so casually done makes you yeah. made me begin to question am i tripping like and maybe i'm it's just a fizz it's not just a fizz it has a lot of meaning to it so that's what's right i feel like that was my first time really beginning to question am i overreacting and yeah. they were gaslighting me yeah which you know part of what you speak about is that one of the one of the many reasons, right, that you left Stanford was because of white toxicity, right? Mm -hmm. So, so can you tell us what what is white toxicity and how does it impact mm -hmm. black and brown folks? Mm -hmm. It's a word I created <laughs> because it just didn't seem like it was a word in the vocabulary that could capture the harm that they do. And so white toxicity mm -hmm. to me is defined as the way in which the many ways in which whiteness shows up. Um, aware, being aware and unaware and how they they're showing up and their inability to deal with their socialization creates harm and toxic spaces for black folks. And so I used this example a couple of weeks ago. White toxicity is whitewashing. It is white um, supremacy culture. It is microaggressions. It is white tears. It is white fragility. Mm. It's all of these things that they've been conditioned in a way they've been conditioned to be that they knowingly and unknowingly show up that creates a hard environment for me. So at Stanford, I call it, you know, I was working a 410 schedule. So I do four 10 hour days and I had seven or eight to myself. But at nine o'clock, I got white fragility. I got to go deal with white fragility at nine. At 10, I'm going to deal with the microaggressions. At 11, I have white supremacy culture, policing my tone, policing my hair, policing my level of professionalism, right? At 11, I got the white tears. I got to deal with everybody who's just so hurt 
and just can't deal with this response and this feedback that I'm giving. And then at 12, I got to go and deal with the, the trauma that comes, that's intentional racism. That's happening. So from eight to 12, I got all of the white toxicity accumulating. And what does toxins do? Eat away at your health, destroy your health, break you down. And so every day, every single day, some people feel like, oh, it's just a microaggression in the wonder to you. But I just right. met at, at 10. I had another one at nine. I had right, right. Eight. <laughs> I got another at the end of the day because we even talked about my clinical work was predominantly black, black and brown folks. So they are dealing with their own level of disillusionment about this institution. And then I'm having a whole space for it. So white toxicity was the accumulation of white supremacy culture the lack of awareness of the ways in which white people are socialized, how they move and manipulate and weaponize things that are so easily available to them to create harmful. And when I say threats, I mean threat. I don't mean, oh, it's threat as in threat to my life because over time, you know, it wears you down. That to me is white toxicity. Yeah, that's good. And I keep thinking about, of course, I bring this up probably every other podcast, racial battle fatigue. Yes. how that is what leads to racial battle fatigue, right? Now you're mm-hmm. anticipating it. Now you're stressed yeah. out. Now your stomach is hurting because you know you have to go into this meeting mm-hmm. with someone who always makes a comment that makes you uncomfortable, right? Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. then increases your stress and, and all of those things. So mm-hmm. I am curious, like, why are Black women probably, especially vulnerable to experiencing workplace trauma? Like, I, mm-hmm. I feel like when you said something earlier around uh, we deliver perfectionism, all those things, you know, mm. kind of play into like what we want to be as a professional. So mm-hmm. I'm curious to hear why do you think we're vulnerable? vulnerable mm. I think we're vulnerable. I'm just thinking about a lot of the black women that I work with, you know, and I'm thinking about their vulnerability factors. I think one, I think black women are committed and dedicated to the work. And I think institutions are not dedicated to the work and they will gaslight you. And so you yep. take that combination and we never stop trying. We never stop fighting. We never stop trying to make it better. And so I think, one, our commitment to the work. Two, I think Black women are the most disrespected people, um, neglected people. And so often it's so easy to dehumanize us. And so we're policed all the time. Our language, our tone, our hair, our complexion, our interpersonal engagements. It just makes more for us to have to deal with. More comes at us, I should say, that we have to absorb because we are painted as this threat to society. You know, we're painted as this angry, uh, aggressive. I hate those words. Angry, aggressive, volatile, all the words that are used to weaponize our experience. And so um, we're knowing that and then we're actively trying to combat that. But being experiencing it, it just makes for a perfect storm of harm because you're like, internally silencing yourself but you need to vocalize it so that you can protect yourself but if you do it they got the weapons for you you know to make you angry and hostile and then oh you're not it's the same thing that happened to me i'm sorry lawanda we got to cut your contract you're creating a hostile environment so gotta cut you you know what i mean so i think we have a lot of everything stacked against us in that way that makes it harder for us it makes us more vulnerable i should say yeah yeah Yeah. it it may it's making me think of some of we previously had one of our guests um, talking about imposter syndrome with black and brown women. So you combine yeah. often 
having imposter syndrome in these mm-hmm. spaces where you mm-hmm. might be one of the only. Yes. And yes. then in addition to that, you're experiencing all of the uh, all of the ways that you start to further question yourself yeah. because you're being gaslit. Yeah. And and it's kind of like what you said, like I gotta deal with this at nine, then I gotta deal with this at two, <laughs> and then before I leave I gotta and that's not just one day, right? Like this is this is what I do on a regular basis. Yes. How is that not gonna take, you know, a toll on our mental health? Exactly. And so and guess what? And sometimes it does make us angry. Anger is mm-hmm. right. emotion, right? right? Underneath my anger is that I'm frustrated. And underneath that is that I'm disappointed. And underneath right. that, I'm hurt. Yep. That you right. can't see right. me, that you refuse to see me. So yes, my words are pointed and they're sharp. And it make, and I may come off as angry because nobody's asking me why I flipped the table. Right. You just pay attention to right. the fact that I flipped it. You know? That's and all I that matters. That's all that matters. And, and that is it's just a vicious cycle that feeds itself and so i wanted to illuminate that cycle so people can kind of step outside of it and take a bigger picture look because we just so absorb in it you know yeah yeah and often don't know what to do or how to be the person that's going to speak up right because then we're thinking about livelihood then we're thinking about um career and like what does that mean for us if we do speak and try to shift or or make it known that Mm -hmm. this is a problem right so Mm -hmm. so many factors that goes into like what makes it difficult for you to advocate for yourself? And that's all labor, right? Yeah. And that's all labor that's happening. And, and yep. depending on your biopsychosocial makeup, that could be damaging for you. That could lead mm-hmm. you to depression. That could lead you to anxiety. That could activate old trauma. And so now we talk about mental health outcomes. Right. All of that's happening and nobody is seeing it. All we're doing is showing up, smiling and being professional. But internally, all these things are going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and then part of what you spoke about is that in 2020, right, like everybody suddenly started to um, take some of these things into consideration and you have organizations saying this is important to us. Please come and, you know, we, we want to create a safer space for our, 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 our team. Um, and a lot of the times when we have these discussions, you know, we talk about how we can cope right? How mm-hmm. black women can cope, how brown women can cope, how black folks and brown folks can cope, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to be able to survive these environments, which of course that's important, useful, helpful information that we need. But what would you tell the leaders of these organizations mm-hmm. and allies, people who identify as allies about what they need to do to create safer spaces for us? I was trying to find this quote because it summed it up so well for an answer to that. And um, it it was basically, I'm going to try to paraphrase it. Allies, leaders, they said, treat racism or anti-Blackness, right? Because racism can show up in the forms of, you know, anti-Latinx, anti-Asian, anti-Black. So, you know, there's many forms. And I'm talking about all of them generally and also anti-Blackness specifically. And so they basically said, treat that posture of racism as you do COVID when we did in 2020. Assume you have it. Do the work that you need to do not to spread it. Okay. And actively do things if you have contracted to undo it, right? Building up your immune system and so forth. So I would say, and I say this to allies, I say this to people all the time, no one escapes conditioning. You've been conditioned to be anti-black. You've been conditioned in some way to be homophobic. We've all been conditioned some way to be ageist. It's just the nature of our conditioning from what we've heard to what we see. Assume that you are not superhuman 
and that you have some of that internalization. And then ask yourself, what and how can I intentionally begin to unlearn that so that I can be a better ally, so that I can be a better leader, so that I am not contributing to the space being toxic? The first is that assumption. Like, don't assume you're exempt, right? Black folks have internalized anti-blackness, right? That's just right. the nature of the way this country works. Right. So assume you have it and now intentionally pursue that growth like you do your promotion, like you do your money, like you do your kids' well-being. Potentially, you know, intentionally, I'm sorry, pursue how do I become more aware? I think when people want to move to action. I think awareness is always the first stop because the unaware person is a dangerous person. If you don't even understand how you're like, hey, Lisa, you know, I have like so many Mexican friends and like, right, right. hey, you love me. <laughs> like, if you, you think you, you think you connecting to me yeah. in some way, right. you, you know what I mean? You created some more. That ain't yeah. it. You know, yeah. proximity, yeah. proximity yeah. to Latinx folks don't make you anti-racist because right, you have right. proximity to them. And yeah. so I think so often we don't start with that awareness because it takes work and it's not the popular opinion. You know, I think people would say go to training. I think people would say educate yourselves. And I believe all that's true. I also believe that we need to be more aware and we need to understand what ways are we contributing? What, what are our areas that we don't see? And there's plenty of people offering space to do that. There's plenty of people offering work to do that. Let's just take advantage of it so we can be more aware of how we show up in the world. That's perfect. I think to your point, awareness is when we talk about any change or even just when you are taking stock of your life, you have to start with awareness, right? I need yes. to see what is happening already yes. before I can decide how I'm going to move if I'm exactly. going to do something different. Exactly. So that's perfect. That's perfect. Mm-hmm. So what do you say to black women that are in these spaces, right? What is one thing that they can begin to do today Mm-hmm. Um, to have these tough conversations or to advocate for themselves. Mm. So this is very good. I just did a talk about this yesterday with Dr. Ty of the Black Girl Doctor. And we talked about three questions Black women should ask themselves when navigating work environments, but also just toxic work environments. And she gave this, I think it's an African proverb um, that's rooted in a different context. But the first I say is, who am I and where am I? Mm. Who am mm. I? You know, what do I bring into this space? What are my social identities? You know, what am I bringing into this space and where am I? I don't think, and I don't, I'll use I statements. I don't think I did a full assessment of where am I? You know, what does this organization stand for? What is the proof? Because people can give lip service, but am I seeing it in the actions? Where am I and who am I and how am I showing up in this space? And I think one of the things that I like to encourage black and brown folks and marginalized folks in general to ask themselves is where are you? And what are your threats in this space, right? If we can identify threats to our well-being, we can figure out how we're going to navigate them because the reality is that we're going to have to. But if we're thinking that we're in a safe place and that it's equal for all and everybody is really trying to be this inclusive environment and belonging, I think we kind of get, we can be illusioned in that way. So I like to start in that same vein as I'm talking about allies and um uh, wife people, how do you start awareness? Who am I and where am I? And right. how is this environment? How am I taking pulse on how they're showing up? You know, what am I seeing behaviorally to suggest that this may be a place that's safe for me or that there may be some things I need to be concerned about? And then getting the support. And that could be from community. Uh, I love y'all. Melanin and mental health um, response to these tragic global events. I like that little checklist. 
gathering community, do something empowering, you know, engage in pleasure. How am I going to navigate this space? Because you can't fight this in isolation, right? We have to find our community exactly. and let that inform you. And that comes from support. It could be professional support or it could be communal support, but it has to be. So I want us, I want Black women specifically to start uh, assessing. It takes critical consciousness, what I call it. What am I navigating in this space? And sometimes you don't have the words for that. You can get support for that. But I, I think that awareness helps us be intentional on in how we move. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah, and really speaking to what you said at the end, having these safe, safe spaces to be able to get the distance right. Like, the, uh, there's nothing yeah. wrong with you. What's wrong is the environment that you're in, right? Like, right, and that right. it's not an affirming environment, which yeah. is why the, the work that you do as a clinician is so important, right? And to be able mm-hmm. for them to also be able to see themselves in you and you mm-hmm. have firsthand experience mm-hmm. and can affirm like, yeah, this does happen. That did happen to you. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. so important and mm-hmm. so much so 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 um necessary in order for us to be able to heal. Mm-hmm. Which which takes me to my next question, um, Dr. Hill. Why then do you believe that therapy is dope? Oh, therapy. Oh, my God. It's such a low. I was thinking about this. I was chewing on it. Therapy is dope for so many reasons. One, you have a space to be. And, and I think we take that lightly because to be mm-hmm. in our fullness, mm-hmm. everybody doesn't get that experience. And therapy is a place for you to absolutely unapologetically be. The center is on you, which so often black and brown women specifically, that's not our reality. The center is on everybody else. So here's this dope ass space where it's all about me. I get a chance to invest in me. I get a chance to pour into me and I get a chance to pursue my greatness as ferociously and fiercely as I do everybody else's healing as I do everybody else's needs. And that for a lot of folks is new and it's novel and it's such an uh, amazing experience that they don't often get. And so I think it's not, you can't describe it in any other way except for dope because you finally get to give to yourself, invest in yourself in the same way that you give to other people. You know, you said something and I, and you know, sometimes like it's right in front of you, but you don't see it. And then somebody says something, you're like, oh, and what right. you just said, not everybody gets to experience this to where you can show up with your vulnerabilities mm-hmm. and with all of who you are mm-hmm. that you may not show to anybody else that mm-hmm. even even sometimes, you know, your, your partners, they might see some of it, but for whatever reason, they may not see all of it. Mm-hmm. Um but how powerful to be able to say, I get to have this experience where there's another human there mm-hmm. and there and, and I can allow myself to be seen fully and be poured into. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I don't have to I don't have to guess yeah. like how are they going to receive this? Like I'm coming here so you can pour into me. So <laughs> exactly. I love that. That's so true. That is so true yeah. for, you, for that. That's going to stay with me unapologetically be, and we take it for granted, right? Because we are clinicians who have therapists and have, so we be waiting like, all right, I can't wait to tell. Yes. (laughs) You know, all the stuff that went down, but a lot of people don't have it. And, and, and I often try to say, this is your permission to pause and be just yourself. Even if there's, even if it's the only 50 minutes out of your seven day 
week that you were able to do that. I think that's a dope experience. And even in those 50 minutes, it's transformative. Yes, absolutely. I literally, as, as you were talking, I was thinking about one of the questions I often ask my clients is like, in what spaces can you be your most authentic self? Like I want to, mm-hmm. cause I want them to learn how to tap into it and know what it feels like and all of that. Mm-hmm. And I, it's so exciting when I hear them say, well, therapy is one. Like, you know, like, cause that's what I want you yes. to, I want you to know that here, it does not matter what you bring. Yeah. You can show up fully, you know? Yes, and so yes. I think that's amazing. And it's true. Like everybody doesn't have that privilege or even know where to start to get that. And especially black and brown folks, right? Yes. Like I've had people to be like, girl, and then like, hey, can I call you girl? I'm like, girl, speak freely. That's all of the curse the words. Curse. And then they yeah, want to yeah. curse, and then they want to talk about experiences. And we take for granted that black and brown folks in marginalized communities don't get to show up as their truest selves. Yeah. And so right. we give them the space to show up as their truest selves, whether you want to use colloquial language, you want to curse somebody mm-hmm. out, you want to say all the things, that is a dope thing to do. Yes, yes. Okay, so clearly we know the answer to this. I feel like every time we get to this question in on the podcast, the audience is like, well, we got the answer. It's done. <laughs> Tell us, why are you a dope therapist? Oh, my God. I'm such a dope therapist, y'all. Because... <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love I'm it. You I know think... it. We know it. <laughs> I know. We all know it. Let's just go ahead and own it. You know it is what it is. I'm like, I'm a dope therapist one for two reasons I understand black women's plight because I am a black woman and I understand our plight and I understand I feel like I have been gifted and I don't think that this is everybody's truth but I think I've been gifted in a way that I get I feel empowered to show up as my truest self and so if you are in my presence you're going to lead that way you're going to feel like I want to show up as my more truer self or my truer mm, self. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people try to coach you into being PC or what's palatable. I'm not for everybody. Like that's just, let's just call a spade a spade. I'm not for everybody. Everybody don't love my energy, but I am for some people. And what makes me dope is that I help black women understand who are you for? Show up anyway. And the people who are for you, they'll you'll draw their energy. And I think that they appreciate that in a way that they haven't experienced by other clinicians. And so I think that's what makes me pretty dope. Well, luckily, we love your energy. <laughs> we, and we don't know who these lame folks are that they don't love your energy, too. <laughs> I'm, like, oh, I'm like, look, I'm sorry. I'm just enough. Go find less. But what about the folks that love your energy, too? Where can they find you? How can they work with you? Please tell them how they can be in touch with you. Tell us all the ways. Oh, yes. So people who love and think I'm dope, too. You can find me at www.drlawandahill.com. There you will be able to connect with me. You'll see what I'm offering. I am a licensed psychologist in Texas and California. So if you want to take a deep dive into anything in the sphere of Black women, Black women trauma, Black women wellness, Black women mental health, Deeper Dives, Therapy, Texas and California, I'm your girl. If you want to learn how to navigate these professional spaces in a way that feels more empowering and more authentic to your voice, we can do wellness coaching, executive coaching, I call it, across the U.S. And I have a lot of fun in that space because I have all of the all the trailblazers, y'all, the COOs, the CFOs, the early careers. <laughs> they are like, listen, I need you to help me move differently. So you can find me on my website for that service. And also one of the biggest things that I am, my newest service, 
that I am promoting is the Executive Leadership Development Workshop. And so that is for any Black woman leader, um, multiracial, biracial, Black, any Blackness across the diaspora, Black woman leader, early to mid to senior career who struggles with broaching these critical conversations, who struggle with navigating ruptured professional and personal, because it'd be turning real personal in the workshops, relationships, Mm -hmm. This is a workshop space dedicated for Black women leaders to get that support. So you can find me on my website, and then there you'll see all the services that I'm offering. That is so awesome. We will make sure to link everything because y'all need to follow, find, <laughs> work with Dr. LaWanda Hill. Thank you so much for joining yes. us. This has been amazing. It's been Thank so fun. Thank you for fun. having me, y'all. My energy is so, I'm so full right now. So, uh, so are we. So are we. Yes. Yes. Oh, you know, oh, you know we're gonna have you back. We know, you know gonna... <laughs> I need to be in person. Yes, yes. yes. Folks, I'm by coastal. I spend 25 percent of the time in Texas and Houston. So oh, yeah, perfect. yeah, yeah. Make my way. But we also like to go to warm weather, and you know, so wherever you want to meet, we can be there. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you all for watching. We really appreciate it. And I hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as we did making it. Um, head over to melaninandmental.com to find our dope merchandise, uh, find other dope therapists, as well as listening to our previous podcast. You can also follow us across social media at Melanin and Mental Health, Melanin Health on Twitter. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.